Hi everyone, Dr. Edith here. Today's episode was kind of supposed to be the first episode of this whole series, and for scheduling reasons, we're dropping it towards the end of our first season. Now listen, we're not done yet, so please don't go anywhere, but I share this to say that I was really excited to get the perspective of today's guest about our kids' development and modern parenting on tape. You'll see why in just a minute. From Columbia University Children's Health at the Columbia University Irving Medical Center here in New York City, you are listening to The Stuff That Matters for Kids' Health. Welcome to the show. I'm Dr. Edith Bracho-Sanchez. I am a new mama who also happens to be a pediatrician, and I want to personally invite you to join me in talking to some of the most brilliant minds of our time as I ask them, what are the things that really matter today for our kids to turn out okay? Today's guest, Dr. Harriet McGurk, is actually retired. After decades of service here at Columbia Children's Health as a developmental pediatrician, she just retired this summer. She was willing, however, to sit down with me for an interview as she emptied out her desk recently. As you will see in our chat, she has a very relaxed attitude toward parenting and raising kids. And listen, with how much we're asked to do these days as parents, I found her refreshing and honestly reassuring. Very quickly, the content on this podcast is provided for general information only and should not be relied on as a substitute for any professional medical advice or treatment. The views shared on this show solely reflect the expertise and experience of me, your host, and our guests. Anyway, here's my chat with Dr. Harriet McGurk. Harriet, welcome. Thank you. Harry, I like to start these episodes asking people what they do in their daily jobs. I know that you recently retired and we're so excited for you. But for someone who doesn't always work with a developmental pediatrician like yourself, what is your job? What do you do? How would you explain it? Well, it's just really being a pediatrician, but with a lot more time (laughs) and a lot more interest and maybe sympathy in the children's varieties. My main goal is to understand what the kid is like and what he can and can't do, and to help the parents focus on the best way to help their child be his best. I love that. It's really a child-centered approach, right? It's really taking the time to understand where the child is, what potential they have, and helping them get there. And the best thing about that is that you can only do that one way, and that is by playing with toys with a kid, Yeah, which is quite fun. Yeah. And part of the reason I wanted to have this conversation is because I wanted to reflect with you on the current moment. I think when I think about it from a pediatrician perspective, there's so much we know about children and their brains and their development. When I think about it from a parent perspective, I have to tell you, sometimes I get overwhelmed by the quote-unquote shoulds that are out there and things that we should be doing as parents and stimulate this and stimulate that and use this strategy. How do you see this current moment of a lot of information, but also a lot of demands on parents? I think the whole fact is really chilling and unpleasant for parents and for children alike. I'm not sure I see the reason that we have to maximize child performance. People were so upset at the academic delay during the pandemic. But face it, it happened. You're going to have to learn some of that stuff the following year. You can't completely 
accelerate to the max. Children have a limit to how much they can learn at one time and to the sophistication of their brains at certain ages. The panic to do everything as early as possible, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. And it makes it so unpleasant for the parents and probably for the children too, to feel that pressure that you have to get every ounce of juice out of the kid's brain every day. You need to kind of enjoy your life and get a sense of time going by and be with your family. And sometimes even your homework can be put off a day. It's not the end of the world to be less than 120 performance. Yeah, I love that. And I, and I love that framework for the rest of our conversation, this framework of enjoying ourselves, enjoying our children, enjoying our lives. Because what I wanted to dive into with you is how do we promote development, knowing, of course, that development is a spectrum, knowing, of course, that there's no such thing as, quote unquote, development, but there's many areas to development, right? And so I wanted to talk to you about what are the things that really matter for the different areas of development. And I'll have to tell you, the one that I worry about the most as a mom and as a pediatrician as well is the social and emotional development. I feel like other things I sort of know how to stimulate. Social and emotional development is one that I'm always consciously trying to stimulate in my child. And I wonder, Harriet, if you can give us a way to think about it. Or maybe uh, try not to think about it. I like that. You are unburdening me. <laughs> First of all, sort of implied before, learning your times tables as fast as possible is not necessarily going to change your life. But the one thing you can't force is relaxation and enjoyment and communication and trust and comfort. The social emotional is really built on something different. It's built on knowing they can count on you to be there, knowing that you're fundamentally sympathetic with them, even when you're mad. It's about spending time together that's not necessarily on a schedule and that's not necessarily always designed to learn something new, but just to be yourself and be with another person. That's a skill, but I don't think you can instruct them in that. I think you have to just practice it. And if you don't take a little time to do it, and if the kid is not allowed to take a little time to do it, it's harder to have it happen. It's really trust and reliability and showing that you like them enough to have a good time when you're with them. Harriet, there's a story you told me a while ago about your child who had bit someone in daycare. And as I remember, it really illustrated a lot of the things you're talking about, about partnering with your child. Tell us that story. It wasn't daycare, actually. It was school. <laughs> it was a little late for that behavior. We expect 19, 20, 21 month old children to bite because they can't explain themselves very well. They can't really let go of the item in order to hit somebody or call the teacher. So what's left? They have to hold on tight with both hands while somebody's pulling away the ball. And then they have no tool except their teeth. <laughs> they're forced into it. But when they're a little bit older and they bite themselves, you have to think about it in a different way. So the first response when you find out that that happened is not to say, oh, how could you? This is so embarrassing. Yeah. You got to hold on and think, 
I wonder what happened to make him so upset. And I think I said something like this to one of my kids. You must have been really upset by something because that's not like you. What happened? So I'm paving the way that I'm not judging. I'm not going to punish you because of something you did when I wasn't there to help you. Yeah. And I'm going to basically sympathize with what happened to you, even if what happened to you involved you biting another kid. Yeah. And I love that story because it does show what you mean by being on your child's side and partnering with them and showing them that you take interest in who they are and that you enjoy yourself being around them, right? And you know who they are. So I really, you know, to me, that illustrates so many of the points that you just made. I also wonder, are we overthinking it? Am I overthinking it? (laughs) I think so. I mean, there are a few ground rules. Be around feed them, try to live in the same place as much as possible, always be on their side, even if they appear to have done something bad. I think it's a bad idea to side with the teacher who wants you to discipline a child at home for something they did in school under her supervision. That's just, you probably just shouldn't ever do that. That's fascinating. So what should we do, Harriet? Should we, like you did, ask them? Yeah. What else can we do? Give it a little time. You can say every time you hit somebody or do some physical thing, you're going to get in trouble. You have to understand that you don't want trouble. I think the other part of it, it's not just all who's right and what's the most virtuous. It's still your kid. Whatever he decided to do, give him credit for making a judgment that that's actually probably right. Now, it might not be right, but he thought it was right. People are doing their best, and I think children don't get credit for that as much as they should. Yeah, and I think that's fascinating because I think sometimes we have this urge as parents, right? Like if I'm told that my child did something in school, I almost have to fight this urge to right there and then in front of the teacher and be like, oh, no, we don't do that. I've taught you not to do that. That's what I we've talked about that at home. We're like, I always have to like perform. And so many parents, when they come to see me as a general pediatrician, perform, right? Quote, unquote, perform. They feel they're being judged. Right. It's that perception that they're being judged. Too bad. You still owe the loyalty to the child. I love that. I love that way of thinking about it. And especially when we're talking about the emotional and the social, right? It's that loyalty and that partnership. Now, let me ask you, and again, doesn't mean that we're not setting rules. Doesn't mean that we're not teaching. No, you have rules and you can, in private, you can even have some consequences for not following the rules. But in front of other people, you have to have the kids back. Yeah, I love that. Now, when it comes to the development of speech, and of course it all goes together, but what are some key things, Harriet, that we can be doing with the limited time that we have to really stimulate that speech? Again, just relax a little bit. If they learn to conjugate the verbs next week instead of this week, it'll be okay. The main thing is if you're having conversations, it's just like play. It's reciprocal, contingent responses in conversation. You say something, he says something. You say something, 
He says maybe something kind of tangential, so follow him. But if you're having conversations about what the other person said, that's the best speech stimulation I think that you can give. If you're reading books that are a little bit above the language level that you normally use in conversation at home, that's even better. We all know that a lot of language exposure, especially to higher level language, they call it an enriched language environment, that's very, very good for kids learning to talk, which is the reason that so many children whose parents don't have much education don't do as well with their language development because you can only do what you know how to do. But it's still richer if it's a lot of it. It's not about the word count. I know that research is very, very good. And it's true about the number of words children are exposed to. And it's so true that if you talk more with your family, they will learn more language. What's not true is this just showering them with vocabulary. That's probably not quite as good as showering them with conversation. Yeah. And I love these key pearls that you just gave us, the conversation, the reciprocal nature of the conversation. Because I think, again, and just like trying to stimulate but not knowing better, many of us are talking at our kids and talking at our kids quite quickly, too. Like we're just talking, 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 talking. Well, that's another thing. Language processing and all mental functions are a little bit slowed down in little kids. And if they have language difficulties, they're probably slowed down a little bit more. If you say to your kid, drop that toy, and it takes them like three or four seconds, maybe more if they're little, to do it, that's just how long it took the trip through the brain for those words to get where they needed to go. Yeah, They're not, people who speak very fast to their kids often think the kid is not obeying them before the kid even heard you, really. <laughs> I mean, I'm guilty of this, right? Like sometimes I'm rushing, we're getting ready. I'm yeah. like, William, grab this. And he doesn't do it right away. And I'm like, come on. And it's, again, he's processing, he's taking it in. Probably, yeah. You and I were watching... <laughs> Everyone at home is going to laugh at this, but you and I were watching a YouTube video of Miss Rachel before <laughs> before we started this recording. A. A is a letter. A is the sound that it makes. A is a letter. A goes the A. Apple. And the reason I wanted to watch her and creators like her who are on YouTube, who are creating content for kids these days, she's very candid. She's a teacher who made this channel for kids who have speech delays. There's some interesting things that she's doing. Again, we don't screen time. We have a whole episode on screen time. We know that it can have some negative effects, but we also know that parents use them when needed. And we've been very candid on this show. But I wanted to pause for a second on this episode and and have you reflect on what you saw Miss Rachel doing in that YouTube video? Look, Miss Rachel is, I think, doing a good job and trying hard. Some of it's a little bit odd. I think she picked up a little bit from Mr. Rogers, who has a very famously had, I'm sorry to say, a famously slow style, which was easy for children to hear. And everybody in TV wanted to get that, but everybody who was an adult thought he was so slow and boring, they didn't know how to deal with it. But it turns out that the pauses and the slow pace 
and leaving time for them to answer when they're really little, it works. That means they're actively listening. And then when there's a pause, they fill it in. And she's figured that out. She's done a really great job with that. I think sometimes I'm a little bit surprised at how early the academics are coming in. I don't think Mr. Rogers did that. And I think that could be a mistake, but there is a lot more pressure now for early academics. I don't think early academics means a lot when you're two or three. So counting and knowing numbers and letters, it's okay, but it doesn't do a lot. Sometimes I feel like her concepts are a little hard for the level of language she seems to be teaching, but it's okay. If you make a mistake with a kid, they'll just ignore the part that they can't understand, and they'll focus on the part they do understand. So I think it's nice to give that thought to the patience that it takes to really speak with a young child. Yeah. And I can attest to that. I mean, William, sometimes when he does watch a screen, we try really hard to limit it at home. But there are times, as I've said in previous episodes of the show where we have used it, he really does ignore the parts he doesn't understand. And then he goes right on to participating when he's understanding again. And he just continues. They don't let it bother them. They let it flow right over. Yeah. But Irma Bomback was a sort of a family columnist, funny lady, quite far in the past. But she said... You're trying to tell me that there's a magic box that will keep my kids quiet and still for up to 40 minutes at a time, and then you tell me I shouldn't turn it on? I know. (laughs) I mean, sometimes you have to take a shower. I know, it's so true, or make dinner, or... Yeah, even then, if you have more time and you can include the child in the dinner preparations, that's even better, but you have to also stay alive. Yeah, yeah, you have to make it to work on time, and you have to... (laughs) That's not the kid's fault, but it turns out to be his problem. (laughs) Harriet, just to round out this part of the show, just to be complete, right, and comprehensive, talk to us about motor development, and I'll tell you, I don't really go out of my way as a pediatrician or as a mom to really counsel on ways to stimulate motor development. I sort of say, your child is going to start crawling or walking, and this is how you prepare your home, and that's sort of that. There's not much else that I'm doing. Should I be doing more? What are your thoughts? I agree with you that it's a program that nature put into kids. They all want to go forward. They all want to get upright and then more upright. If you give an 18-month-old a couch, he's going to climb up onto it. And if he's not doing it at 18, which is kind of a typical time, let him do it at 20. It'll be okay. But the motor drive is inherently so powerful. Nature gave it to them. They're going to try. Maybe you can slow it down a little by never letting the child go on the floor. I think a lot of people do try to do that, or by carrying them everywhere and keeping them in the stroller and not letting them walk. But one way or another, they figure it out. It's nice to let them explore, to take them places where there's grass or a rug or something that's safe so they can explore more. But I think that is probably the least of your worries. Yeah. Yeah. Great. I'm going to keep on keeping on when it comes to motor development. I also want to talk to you, Harriet, and this is a little bit of a transition into what's come to be known as parenting styles. And those of us who are on social media, it really does feel like 
there's a new word for a parenting style every time we open our social media accounts. Like it's respectful parenting. And I can't even remember all the other styles of parenting that I've heard out there. And so I want you to tell us what are the true, true parenting styles and what should we be striving for if we're optimizing again for development, for enjoyment, for happiness of our children long term? The theory that I'm familiar with is not about those details so much. I mean, of course, respectful is good if every, in any relationship. The four styles that you hear about in theory, or sometimes it's just three, but there's authoritarian, which is the old-fashioned, spare the rod, spoil the child, kind of enforce the rules. And that has some advantages. The kids do very well, but they do sometimes get into trouble when they're outside of the parent's direct supervision. And they're not as confident. The one that we all strive to follow is the authoritative, not authoritarian. In other words, it's very clear. Everybody's role is defined. They know what they're expected to do, and we'll help them do it if they want help doing it. But They may not be quite as like A-plus oriented, but they may incorporate a little bit more of a, the self-starter is they take it in them. So the grades may not be perfect, but they'll always be interested in getting stuff done. Yeah. The other two, one is that it's unpredictable, that the parent is either very unkind or very kind, but you never know what you're going to get. So you have to be careful with them. Fourth kind is just neglectful, you know, people who take drugs or don't always come home or we can all recognize that as a problem and the parent is having a problem being a parent. And that is the neglectful. So there are probably four styles, but if we want the best attachment long-term and the best interiorized confidence, that's probably not internalized would be better, that the authoritative is what we're all striving for. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that review and recap. And I think everything else that we're seeing come up in our socials, those of us who do engage in that way, it's yes, you think about it, hear about it. Of course, respectful, all of these things are good. But I think thinking about it within that framework, right, of those basics that you just described. Yes. And if you're distracted by trying too hard to do one thing perfectly, I mean, a lot of people are very distracted by the concept of vegetables. I don't know how that got to be such a big thing, but they're so busy fighting with the kid about eating vegetables that they sort of lose the pleasure of the meal. And it's as if it's a do or die kind of thing. I mean, I don't know. You don't like vegetables? Have some fruit. I don't care. I love this approach. And I think for those of us who are feeling all the pressures, it's really nice to talk to someone like you who has so much experience. Remind us that it's going to be okay. Well, it's going to be as okay as it's going to be. (laughs) Important clarify. Your control is not 100%. Yeah, I love that. And I wanted to round up this episode, Harriet, doing a quick round of true and false of things that are out there getting people's attentions. And I want your take. So, true or false, daycare is better than nanny for kids' development. I don't think so. I think a really good daycare and a really good nanny both have a lot of advantages and are fine. The problem is that it's easier to see how a nanny... Well, I'd say, again, for the first three years, 
the person who cares for your child when you're not there should be a person. It should be an individual relationship in which your kid matters more than anybody. Now, there can be two or three kids in that same category mattering more than anybody to one person. That often happens in a home. But if the daycare is not very well staffed and does not have a good play-based curriculum, the kids don't get as much personal build up, I think. If it depends again on the personality, your child, some people are born easygoing and they like all the other kids and they play easily. Those kids will do better in daycare. The sort of prickly ones that are worried about everything, you don't know when you're going to get that kid, but some of us are going to get that kid. Those kids might do better with somebody who knows them directly and puts them first. I think a lot of the daycares do a wonderful job, but just because it's a group care setting does not mean it's better. It's the individual relationship that children have with their caretakers that I think is the most important. I love that. And it's really good for all of us to hear those things as we look for different care options these days, which are limited by many, many factors. Now, the next true or false, speaking two languages at home can cause a speech delay. No, we used to think that, but it turns out with a little bit of study, it's not true at all. In some ways, it's actually an advantage. As you get older, knowing more than one language gives you a better vocabulary, a better way to remember things. We used to think, well, for example, if you have autism or you have a language problem, speak one language and it'll be easier and you'll do better. But it turns out that if the parents are not speaking a language they feel comfortable speaking, it will be stilted and it will be unnatural and it won't be as rich because it won't be as spontaneous. So actually, now we don't recommend that one language. We recommend people speak in the language they feel most comfortable speaking in to yeah. give the child the maximum richness of whatever language it is. And later on, you can translate to another language, but the richness of your language learning is probably better if everybody speaks what makes them comfortable. And two languages might alter your vocabulary distribution a little bit early, but it's not going to damage your language. Amazing to hear. We're speaking two languages at home. William is mixing both. You never know (laughs) what's going to come out of that kid's mouth. (laughs) Mixing both is, is exactly what you expect. Yeah. He's just a little guy. Yeah. And he'll say a sentence and half of it will be English and half Mm -hmm. of it will be Spanish. And if you don't understand him, Harriet, he'll look at you like, what's wrong with you? (laughs) (laughs) Last true or false I have for you. Educational toys and classical music can make our kids smarter. Well, I know you expect me to say no, and I'm going to say no. I think it's wonderful if you hear Mozart and like it. And it's really richer than a dumba, dumba, dumba kind of regular country song or some simple arrangement. And if you can get it, it's probably great. But I don't think smarter is the word I would use. It's educational toys can be very interesting, but usually not unless somebody else plays with them, with the kid. They can't think of everything all by themselves. They have to have an adult kind of set up the structure and show you what you can do with it. My husband bought my son a catapult back from some travel trip. And he loved weapons and all kinds of mayhem, but 
he didn't really want to build this little model all by himself. And he made his father promise, promise to do it (laughs) with him. Well, he's 41 now. I finally threw it out. (laughs) It was time. It's great if you have an enthusiastic partner. Yeah. You know, and it's interesting, the kids will make you do these things, right? Like they, like sometimes I'll like grab a toy that I think is a good toy. And I'm like, here, William, sit for a little bit and play with this. And he's like, no, no, mama, sit down (laughs) here, right? Like play with me. He makes me. Well, he's a lucky boy that if he can make you, but that's what they need. We that's if you wanted to enrich a person's intellect, probably just playing with them would be the first step. I love that. What a better way to end our show than the importance of play. Right. And if you're having fun playing with them, that's money in the bank. (laughs) Thank you so much, Dr. Harriet McGurk, for coming out of retirement to talk to us today. Oh, my pleasure. And thank you at home for joining me on the Stuff That Matters for Kids Health podcast. If you liked our show, make sure to tune back in next week to leave us a rating and review and to help us spread the word about our show. That's right. We'd love it if you could tell a parent friend IRL in real life or just drop a link on your group chat. We'll take that too. You can also find us and more information on kids health on our social media channels at Kids at Columbia. I'm Dr. Edith Bracho Sanchez in New York, and I'll see you next time.